China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Dan Mattingly, an Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University. Today we'll be discussing his article, The Missionary Roots of Nationalism, Evidence from China, which was recently published in the Journal of Politics. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. As I was just saying before we recorded, you are now our inaugural repeat podcast guest, uh, a testament both to how desperate we are for guests. No, just kidding. A testament to how 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 great the work is you're doing and how variegated and interesting it is. Because the last time we had you on, we were talking about the, the PLA. Now we're talking about a paper which really delves deep into an issue of of significant importance to today, which is understanding the conduits of nationalism. But you're looking at a specific thread of nationalism and some of the various interests and, and influences on it. Even though you are a repeat guest, um, I wonder if you can still indulge me and if we can ask you the, the opening question we ask all, all guests, which is, if you could tell us a little bit about your background, but I think specifically your intellectual background. Uh, how did you get to Yale? How did you um, decide you wanted to spend your life thus far trying to understand China, but China's political system? And more importantly, how did you develop such a diverse set of um, intellectual interests about China's political system? Well, Jude, thanks so much for having me back on. It was such a fun conversation the first time. I'm like, how could I, how could I say no? Uh, so I came to China, you know, partially I took, I took classes as an under, I was an undergraduate actually at Yale with the great Jonathan Spence, uh, took one of his classes on uh, China, his actually his big mega lecture class. And, you know, Spence was just this amazing order and lecture in addition to being an, uh, just a sort of magical writer about China. And that class was sort of one of the first things that drew me in to, to thinking about China. Um, he actually, there was actually just a memorial for him this past weekend, or I guess now two weekends ago. And so taking that class was one of the first sparks of interest in China for me. And sort of by chance, I fell into this fellowship through the Princeton Asia program, going and teaching in rural China in Hunan province for a year, which was you know, this is in the mid 2000s. China was obviously, you know, had already sort of taken off. Uh, but this part of rural China that I was teaching in was it was really the sort of first wave of mega development for this part of Western Hunan province. And just like seeing that in action was was really exciting and sort of turned me towards thinking about, I, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do after college and uh, and seeing seeing China developing fast, seeing people sort of get wealthy and and sort of trying to unpack some of the contradictions in Chinese society of, you know, the mid 2000s. We have this really rapidly growing country. It's also authoritarian in a way that, you know, my uh, sort of like undergraduate background wouldn't have led me to expect, like, how, how does this authoritarian country growing so fast, right? The classic question that I think maybe one or two waves ago, a scholarship was thinking about, which is fascinating. So that's kind of what drew me to China, you know, kept going back to China, uh, did a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, and now uh, here at Yale, where, you know, so my research really is there are two streams. So this, this paper that I'm talking about today is one uh, research stream that I'm sort of I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'll ever actually wrap it up, but I was really interested in the roots of nationalism and patriotism in China. And so this paper was one attempt to grapple with where did nationalism or this sort of sense of national identity come from in China, right? You have this empire, of course, that's extremely long lived. CCP likes to trace it back to 5,000 years ago, but however many thousand, you know, maybe it's only two or 3,000 years, but whatever it is, it's obviously a really long lived country. But the sort of specific ideas of, of nationhood and nationalism, there's a debate about how far back it goes. You have people like Nicholas Tackett arguing maybe it goes all a thousand years back to the Song Dynasty, the sort of conception of nationhood that looks a little bit like what we think about nations are today. And this paper, being a little bit less ambitious than Tackett and sort of trying to trace part of its origins back, you know, 120 years ago or so uh, to the end of the Qing dynasty. Um, so that was that's one research stream is sort of trying to unpack nationalism today in China and also sort of understand its long-term origins. Uh, the first time I was on the podcast, I was talking about my other current major research stream, which is looking at the role of the People's Liberation Army in 
Chinese politics, Chinese domestic politics. And so that's actually what my next book and uh, is, is actually focusing on the role of the PLA in elite politics. So hopefully in like four years, I can be your first three-time guest on the podcast <laughs> if I can invite myself back for the future. Uh, so that, that's sort of where this project fits in my overall research stream, I guess. Can I rewind three minutes and, and just ask you a, a question about research paradigms that are driving the field. I'm curious, as someone sitting on the outside and, and who just sees you know, the occasional output, but very selectively uh, of what folks who are working on China are, are producing, what do you think now when you're in conferences, when you're looking at working papers, when you're advising PhD students, what do you think are the either current or, or critically, like what are some of the emerging waves or, or sort of fundamental questions? If we've moved beyond modernization theory, if we've moved, you know, beyond thinking about the resilience of China's authoritarian system. Where are we now? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, with that last one, which is there's, of course, this really influential, fantastic piece by Andy Nathan on, on unpacking China's authoritarian resilience. And that was really, you know, he wrote that in the context of the early 2000s. And that was 2003, I think? 2003, right. Yeah, exactly. So he's, he's, so he's talking about the transition from, from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao, right? Which, in retrospect, we understand is this kind of unique moment of transition. And, and, but at the time, I think completely reasonably, it, it was this article that launched a thousand ships of people trying to understand just how resilient the authority China's political system is and how institutionalized it is. And now in a context where you have Hu Jintao, of course, being, you know, literally led off the stage, you know, we don't know what happened, but like literally led off the stage, it's seeming to usher out this era of institutionalization. So I think that's what probably the next wave of research, especially the stuff that looks at China in the big picture, is going to have to grapple with, you know, how did, how did we get here? And to the extent that we didn't see it before, like, how, how can we explain, how can we explain how this kind of, I think it's a different paradox, the regime as a whole remains resilient, but within this, this regime that so far has been fairly stable, there have been dramatic political shifts. So I think that's one big thing to unpack. Can I ask on that question, will the puzzle be, I don't want to make a normative comment here, but I will anyway. How did we lurch back? How has China potentially retrogressed in terms of that directionality of institutionalism or normalization of politics? Or will the question be looking at the broad hundred year history of the Communist Party? How the heck did we get that one decade from 2002 to 2012 where, where we did see a clean transition of power, where we saw some collective leadership sort of consolidate. Is the puzzle Hu Jintao or is the puzzle Xi Jinping? That's a great question. Yeah, I think, I think maybe in retrospect, the puzzle is, is more how did we ever get this period of collective leadership? I mean, so in, in the, the, the book that I'm writing now is basically exactly about this. So I guess my, my pointing the conversations in this direction is just kind of like pointing it to my own interest. But I think in order to get this period of collective leadership, right, you had to have a, a, a specific set of factors align where you had basically a couple of weak successors, both of them picked by Deng Xiaoping in the early 90s. And sort of, you know, almost by accident, it fell out that you had this this, you know, first Jiang Zemin being selected in the wake of the 1989 protests. And then in 92, you know, Deng elevates Hu Jintao. And he's clearly, he's so young that it's, it sort of makes it hard for an alternative to emerge because he's what he's like, he's in his late forties when he gets elevated to the Paul Perot Standing Committee, like incredibly young. And I'm thinking about the Paul Perot Standing Committee today. And so I do think it's, I do think it's almost, it's, there's, I, I don't think it's an accident that this happens. I mean, I think that there were basically some strategic incentives for Deng to do what he did and to pick two people who were potentially to some degree weak and malleable. So that even as he's handing power off to the next generation, his generation can continue to exert some influence behind the scenes. But I think this is something then that's going to, you know, it's, it's also hints at a problem for Xi Jinping as he tries to pick his own successor. Like he's also going to have incentives to pick a weak successor. And that's going to create another set of problems for the party down the road. I remember someone we had on the podcast recently, Ma Xiao, we had it on his book on, on sort of understanding localized political bargaining in the railway system. But I remember the first, I first came across his name because he wrote this really, really great paper in 2015, 2016 on succession. And uh, basically, to your point on the contingent factors that are necessary to have a more normalized succession process in an authoritarian political system. And I think this was written before the 19th Party Congress, but you could already see that the essential ecosystem elements that were required to have transition work were totally breaking down. 
I don't want to not give it its credit, but it's something to the effect of, you know, you need a weak enough leader. There can't be a dominant faction or, or, or leader. So you need some sort of balanced compromise between, you know, two or more groups to where you can get some stability in a succession process. I only mention that to say it does feel like in retrospect, less so in the academy, but certainly outside of it, there was some sense of almost teleological inevitability of the party having now become a snowball, you know, rolling down a hill towards normalization of politics and sort of a deep settling of roots of collective leadership. And now it feels very, like in retrospect, very contingent on, as you say, a number of it wasn't totally ephemeral and superficial, you know, but but really required at least a few core elements to be present. And once those elements were erode, then it seems now that perhaps some of the assumptions that were being made, at least by people like me, 10 years ago about how durable the direction was, were totally incorrect. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, that's a great paper by Matt Shalley, which listeners should definitely, definitely look up. I think it's in Studies in Comparative International Development or something. It's a fantastic paper uh, and definitely has shaped my thinking on this. And I think you're right that there was this, and I know it was, in, and in the academy too, right? There's to a certain extent sort of like somewhat teleological, in retrospect, that has a flavor of teleological thinking um, about how these, how these institutions work and, and accumulate over time and, and become stronger. You know, I don't think, I think most of the writers who are actually writing about it were careful not to say that, right? But, you know, the overall kind of like intellectual project had that, had that flavor. I guess I mean, another way to think about it, and this is, this is what I've been writing about in my new book is... I, mean, I think there's a trade-off that the, that elites, the larger elite coalition, or you know, Susan Trick kind of coined this term, the selectorate. In other words, a group that picks the leader, which is kind of ill-defined and shifts in Chinese politics over time. Like who? But there's a trade-off that selectorate faces when it comes to thinking about: Do you want to hand off power to a relatively weak leader? Like Hu Jintao, who's going to be forced to share power, and you know, I I would argue that a key reason that Hu Jintao had to share power is he didn't have strong control of the coercive services, particularly the military, but also the also the police. Or do you want to hand it off to somebody who's a bit stronger, like Xi Jinping? And for for the pathology, I think of power sharing is that you get someone like Hu Jintao, who then makes the regime more vulnerable to sort of mass protest and unrest because he has weaker control over the coercive services, and that. That creates that creates all these problems and more vulnerable to elite splits. So you can think about the, the Bolshevik incident. Um, so that puts the whole regime potentially at risk. You know, you can sort of see the snowballing problems at the end of the Hujin Tower as as kind of an extreme manifestation of that. On the other hand, if you hand up power to somebody stronger, uh, you put yourself at risk because you know Xi Jinping might come after you and your family and purge you. But at the same time, at least in the short run, he's going to make the regime more uh, more stable and less vulnerable to elite splits and these outside threats. And so I just so I think there's a bit of a trade off. And I guess I would argue like. Even though from the outside, we didn't see Xi Jinping coming, I guess to a certain degree, we didn't see this personalization of power coming. Like maybe we actually should have seen it coming. First of all, if we had been more carefully reading and parsing what Xi Jinping had been saying uh, for decades before he came into power, like he was clearly someone who was interested in party discipline. He was someone who, uh, you know, who wanted to crack down on corruption and who was you know, already somewhat, uh, you know, distrustful of some elements of the reform project. And this is in his public speaking and writing. And so I think we might have expected when they chose him and he was the first leader, he was the post, he's the only leader who wasn't selected by, who wasn't either Mao or Dong or selected by Mao or Dong. Um, and he emerged in this opaque leadership selection process in which there appeared to be wide input. But I think, but I think part of the reason they chose him was that arguably they knew that he would be a stronger figure than than Hu Jintao. And then, and then they gave him even more power in the wake of what, all the stuff that went down in 2012. I realize we're, we're straying, we're straying a bit from what we we're going to talk. We're, we're very far from the Qing dynasty, but if, if you can indulge me for a few more minutes, partly because I think a lot of people coming off the 20th party Congress will have a whole set of questions that I think are really important. And, and actually it's a really important moment to interrogate assumptions that were going into the party Congress. But as you're doing here as well, sort of check assumptions about what did we think we knew that we didn't and how might adjusting those expectations or refining the, the analytical lens be important moving forward? I guess two questions that come out of what you just said. The first is, I wonder if we could have seen that about Xi Jinping, because I wonder that seems to present Xi Jinping himself in 2012 as a, as a fully formed leader where, where what happened over the next 10 years was just the inevitable flow from you know, his personality and, and a set of contingent events. I feel like I've not read the really good book that understands she in power through time. 
But I feel like that would be critical because I think Xi's assumptions about the world, his own position in power and what he needed to do in January 2013 are probably very different from Xi Jinping today, both because the world has changed in significant ways, US-China relations have. Also, a set of contingent events that occurred over the last decade, I think probably had a, a formative you know, impact on Xi's view of governance. I think probably, you know, so Edward Snowden happened when she was in power. The 2015 stock market crash, which I think, I don't want to over-egg it, but I was living in China at the time, I felt like was this really significant paradigm shift in how she, but also regulators thought about markets. And it was not long after the, the equity market crash that Xi Jinping started to talk about financial security as national security. So I think, you know, that event shocked him. I think Trump, Brexit, you know, COVID. So that's one is I wonder how, I wonder if we're beating ourselves up a little bit too much on something which we couldn't have predicted because subsequent events played as much of a role in shaping where we got today as much as, yeah, sure. I'm sure she she had some priors that we didn't anticipate or see. The other challenge is signal noise. Now we can go back and pick the very specific speeches where she said the thing in 27 about, you know, foreigners and their full bellies and party discipline. He also gave a lot of other speeches where he's talking about reform. We, we've just, for our open source project, have been translating uh, pieces we found on CNKI back to the 90s where Xi Jinping gives interviews and shows a little bit of skin. You know, and there's good stuff in there. It's not all blood and iron. So part of it now is it's just easy to pick up on the speeches we should have looked at. But he's given 10,000 speeches and I'd say 80% of them are inoffensive. That was more of a comment than a question, but let me just raise my voice at the end of it to make it a question and ask, what do you think? <laughs> well, no, I, have, I, I think you're right. First, on, on this point that Xi Jinping has clearly evolved while in office and responded to events. Like, how, how, how can he not have? And I think he pointed out a bunch of the key key moments that probably, I would assume, shaped his thinking and, and pushed him in, in new directions. So, so I, think that that's, I think that that's certainly the case. And also, you're right. Like, if you go back and look at Xi Jinping's early speeches, and this is one of the things that people said about him, was that he was enough of a coming into office, he's like enough of a chameleon that he could please everybody. So there's the risk of, yeah, there's the risk of, I guess, sort of like overfitting based on, like, you can go back and find the hardline Xi Jinping speeches that he made that arguably were pleasing the more hardliner. And then you can go back and find the speeches that are about reform that were going to please the reform crowd. And so like, he was a politician, right? And he was, he was an effective, I mean, among other, anything else, like he, he's, he's a very effective politician within the Chinese system. And so, uh, so you're right that there's a danger here of extrapolating too much uh, and going back and finding, finding the data points that, uh, that, that fit the theory. But I still do think that if you go back, I'll, I'll still, I'm going to defend what I said. I still do think if you if you go back and all that aside, I do think that if you go back and, and read some of the early stuff or look at some of the speeches that he gave right when he came into office, you know, that that speech that speech to the Central Committee on the fall of the Soviet Union that got, you know, in probably like early 2013, uh, that got a lot of a lot of press coverage. I mean, I, th I think in there. No, by the way, that was a leaked speech. So that was a closed door speech. A leaked speech. Right. I guess which has never been confirmed. Right. It's never been officially released or confirmed. So, but also because it's a leak speak, it makes it difficult to apples to apples this because we don't see the full breadth of leak speeches from Xi Jinping or other leaders. So it's like, I'm not saying it's insignificant, but I'm saying it makes it hard to, to understand how you interpret that speech when you just basically get a little data point that crops up without like a representative sample. I'm not trying to diminish the speech, but. Yeah, no, no. I think I think that's 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 entirely fair, right? Like the rest of the speech could have been talking about the, you know, the greatness of reform and opening, and and it probably wasn't or cardinal principles or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. But I still think, in comparative perspective, within the Chinese political system, if you compare him to someone like like you know Li Keqiang, who's kind of the main potential other person they could have picked in. 2007. I do still do think that there's an instructive contrast between the two of them. You know, so like, so Lee was, so I haven't done it. I have not done this as comprehensively for Lee as I have for Xi Jinping. But if you go back and look and look at what he was saying around the same time, and you look at what other like Chinese and Western analysts are saying about him, you know, there's definitely a difference in flavor, right? Like, like, it's not entirely surprising. You're right. I bet that's actually would be the most instructive thing is I bet if you took the totality of Lee's public comments and statements from 2007 to 2012, and she's, 
I think you would see she took far to the right or left, if you like, of Lee. You'd still see you'd still see some, or I don't know what the directionality is. There'd be a delta. The, the second question I want to ask, and then I promise we'll pivot to the paper, is um, partly because when I feel like a narrative takes hold, I start to get super distrustful of if it's actually true. And one of them is about the crisis period the party was in when she took power. I only query it partly because there's so many established memes or heuristics that really, I, I understand why they're there. They're he they help us do a lot of lifting without taking 16 pages to, to summarize it. So you have a number of these over the years. You know, one is the unspoken social contract between the party and the people. You don't mess in politics, you know, and that works until suddenly it doesn't. You know, the old sawhorse that I remember was uh, if Chinese growth drops below 8%, I don't know if you remember this. This was like 2006, 2007. And it was a it was a shorthand way to talk about the fact that growth is important for stability. Now, it was a little bit too refined for its own good because, of course, growth dropped below 8% and, you know, China's still held together. But another one I hear is this moment of crisis that Xi Jinping takes power in. Without denying the specific contingent events that we could list, Bo Xilai, Wenzhou train crash, I wonder, do we have any more meat we can put on the bones of that? Because it does seem like if I were tell if I were Xi Jinping telling a story, that's the exact narrative I would go with as well. Is I inherited this thing? This is like early 1989. You know, I get over this. I get the Soviet Union. How do I save it? And the second kind of related question is: Is China more in a crisis now than it was in 2011 for very different reasons? Coming off the 20th Party Congress and thinking about the pathologies we're seeing emerge under a very centralized rule with an evisceration of succession norms. You know, in 10 years from now, will we be writing a book about how, you know, in by the time of the 20th Party Congress, Xi Jinping had steered the party, ironically and tragically ironically, into a different cul-de-sac of danger. This one, much more in line with some of the pathologies that the party tried to move away from in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, I do think so. In terms of the, like the crisis, and I think there was really, I mean, there's a set of things that happened in 2012, 2013, that obviously, uh, you know, took on in the eyes of Western analysts, and also in the later, you know, the way that Xi Jinping and others talked about it has been portrayed as a crisis. But I do think that there's a real, there's a real set of problems that I think in the kind of 2005 to 2012 window that the party was dealing with, that were real, that I think weren't just manufactured, but then I think it's right that then political actors that have incentives to go and like magnify it and, and put a narrative on it that benefits them politically. And I think it definitely benefited Xi Jinping politically. So what were the real things that were happening? I think, you know, one, the the rise in domestic unrest. So, you know, the the party was released, they were releasing these official figures about the number of mass incidents, right, up through, what, 2010 or something, at least up to 2007. And of course, they were they were rising dramatically. At the same time, there, there are these color revolutions happening I mean, you know, in Eastern Europe and uh, Central Asia. And so there was like definitely in there seemed to be concern internally in the party and in some of these journals that, the you know, the uh, Ministry of Public Security and like affiliated universities put out. There definitely was concern about this. Whether that's a crisis is, is you know, it's, it's a difficult assessment. At the same time, I think there was also definitely a sense that elites, basically, that there was there was a lack of party discipline that was threatening the party. And you had. So, so Bolshilai was maybe a symbolic incident. Like, I, I'm really skeptical of some of the claims that, that he and Joe Young Hong were trying to like actually actually launch a coup. I mean, come on. But I'm not saying it's out of the realm of possibility. But but the fact that Bolshilai was, you had these local officials who, among other things, like had control over the people's armed police units uh, in their jurisdiction and a lot of leverage in local society and also gave them like leverage relative to, to other elites. You know, again, Bolshilai is like symbolically important because of the way he dispatches the PAP to try to go catch his former police chief, uh, Wang Lijun. But but I think there were basically this is symptomatic of a set of problems where you had rising social unrest and maybe even more worrisome for the party, a lack of discipline among political elites that really could, you know, threaten the 1989 moment. We have like a visible leadership split that actually that actually threatens the party. But definitely, it's also, I think, the case that it benefited Xi Jinping to then come in and, and you know, make all these claims that or, or to have people below him, at least, echo claims that Joe Yong-Kong and others, you know, were actually like a direct threat to the party and threatening to, to launch a coup, which um, which is something I don't know if Xi Jinping himself has ever said that. No, I don't think he's ever he's listed the problems 
you know, like in, in the history resolution, you know, he lists all the problems they were dealing with before the new era. And in the 20th Party Congress report. Yeah. And in party discourse, you write, and in journals, you can see discussion of the pre-Xi era as an accumulation of, of challenges, problems. But it also, again, I guess where I have a just somewhat trouble thinking through this clearly is that's also a dominant political narrative that the new regime victor is imposing on the past. I was living in China for, for that entire 27 to 2012 period. And it's funny because my memory of it was this was a time, a formative time of the kind of China rise story. I mean, this is where you're seeing covers on The Economist saying that this was the China model. You know, this is, um, you know, when you begin to see this idea of a, an assertive, truculent, this is when China overtook Japan in terms of GDP, the number two. So I also remember this as a period of triumphalism. And in a way that I can imagine a Chinese analyst in Beijing could look at the United States in any given year and sort of rack and stack all the, you know, all the challenges in American society and and sort of come to a conclusion that this this system is teetering. And it's hard when you're not in a country with a real super tactile feel for the interlinkage between problems, you know, the, the sort of asset and liability side of the ledger in tandem to be able to look at those. So that's the only reason. And I guess it's also a question of how are we defining a crisis that probably eight people will have 14 different definitions of what you mean by by crisis. Anyway, I, I'm belaboring the the point. No, I think it's I think it's right. I think I know. I think that's totally fair, right? Like, yeah, and thinking about like I was, yeah, I was also I was in China and during the the <laughs> during the leadership transition in in 2012, and no, so I think those I think those questions those questions are are fair and like it's easy, yeah. Easy, easy, maybe easy in retrospect to put these labels on, on, on things. I mean, I still think there's a case that this was what was going on. I think the party, I think elements of the party felt like a crisis, but that needs to be distinguished from China was in a crisis. Because in many ways, you know, there was a great sense of pride and optimism that was burgeoning throughout this period. Opportunity sets were expanding for students abroad. Chinese companies, you have coming to the fore, these new technology companies like Alibaba that are, are actually pursuing overseas markets, but also rising domestically. In retrospect, it was a period of extraordinary political pluralism relative to today in terms of civil society organizations. Can I ask you, for your answer to this question about what was China more in a crisis in 2012 or 2020? Basically walking back what I just said, I, uh, because I do think it depends on the lens you're looking at it from. I can buy a narrative that the accumulation of challenges within the party and, and within the party elite by 2012 did approach something that could reasonably be defined as a crisis for the party and the need to reset and, and redirect I would distinguish that from a crisis for China. Now I worry that we're seeing the incipient phases of what in five years will be a political crisis for the party. And, and of course, a, a political crisis of that magnitude will have extraordinary downstream effects. That's why I think the 20th Party Congress was such a, you know, put an underline, full stop, exclamation mark, all caps of the direction that the political system is heading in that is just so obviously damaging for the party itself and for China as a whole. And unfortunately, you're already seeing the malign knock-on effects evident in Chinese society. Talking to friends who are in the tech sector in China, small small companies, just bit entrepreneurs, but the sense of like, we can be the next Jack Ma, which is this incredibly inspiring organic story about potential and about expansion, self-fulfillment. I mean, that that excitement is is gone there. You talk to these people as well, but friends in academia in China, life is just, you know, unless you're working in, in math or engineering, if you're anywhere near the social sciences. So you can pick sort of seven or eight areas where we were on a trajectory, even in an authoritarian system that were inspiring. And I feel like a lot of those have just slammed into either entered a cul-de-sac or slammed into a roadblock. So that's why I feel like this is a totally different type of crisis. It's not, you know, it's not a return to the Mao era, but it is the reemergence of sort of, I think, very deep pathologies. I don't even think these are unique to China per se. I mean, these are a lot of these are just pathologies of having one party and one leader in power for too long. <laughs> uh, and by the way, this is why we have term limits. 
because we would have this problem as well. It's why we have to sort of physically impose that a leader leave office after a certain amount of time, or at least have a mechanism to make sure that they can be removed from office because, you know, you get sclerotic rule in any sort of regime if you have someone in power for too long. So. No, I think that's spot on. And, and of course, you know, it also creates a crisis as you're suggesting for whenever, whenever Xi Jinping is no longer able to rule, what's going to happen to the system. And I think I think I'm not I'm not confident in any way to say president for life. I think that's just one possibility. I think I bet Xi Jinping in his own head hasn't made some sort of definitive decision, but I think it's a siren song. Power is a siren song. I think he'll find, you know, I still have more work to do. It's not time yet. You know, there's also a, a inevitable sort of tragedy of as you were just talking about, you know choosing a successor, it's almost inevitable that he'll never feel like he's got the person he can turn the reins over to without recognizing how it's his choices that have you know winnowed the pool to a bunch of people he doesn't think are capable or sufficient to, to take over from him. The reason we went on so long is because I, I, it's just great to hear your thoughts off the cuff on something you think about so, so deeply and in, in um, so many different angles. So appreciate you hearing questions about Hu Jintao, Bo Xilai, and the 20th Party Congress. Well, thanks. It's stuff that I think all, all of us who do work on China love to talk about. So it's fun to hear. But with 15 minutes left, I want to slam on the brakes, grab the wheel, take a hard left or right, I don't know the direction, and talk about this paper, which I, I just found so interesting, part political science, part history lesson, which is tapping into this really important conversation, if I can make a segue, that you know, thinking about China's future direction and the role of nationalism. And there's lots of questions about, you know, with growth declining, will Xi Jinping grab the dial of nationalism and crank it up three notches if the, the economic dial is 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 trending downward? You know, will nationalist pressures compel some sort of uh, aggressive action on Taiwan, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So understanding nationalism in China with, with granularity is critical. And, and you're looking at what angle on this. You know, as a first question, I guess I, a twofer is just, you know, main arguments of the paper, but also from your own perspective, what was the sort of question or that you were interested in, in exploring here? And why was this particular moment in history and this specific type of influence, quasi-influence, or at least threat of Chinese nationalism, why was that of interest to you? This project came about, you know, partly because they're sort of interest, interested in understanding this moment of the fall of China's last empire, the Qing dynasty. And this is a moment, I mean, and I think it does speak to some current issues uh, where, you know, nationalism is too much short for regimes. Like nationalism, of course, can be used to try to pump up patriotism and, and, and also anti-foreign sentiment in a way that might benefit the regime. But the fall of the Qing is, is in a sense, like a cautionary tale for how nationalism can undo a political regime uh, that basically lost lost the thread and lost popular support, you know, particularly because of a lot of the foreign imperialism, foreign incursions into uh, Chinese territory, you know, starting with the Opium War, uh, the first and, and, and second Opium War. And so one, one thread of the paper is sort of understanding, like, what are the origins of nationalism? Another is understanding the origins of the fall of this regime, which is really a result of, you know, nationalist dissatisfaction with the direction the regime is going. And then a third, a third piece of the paper, which is about uh, sort of how foreign missionary activity incited uh, the creation of these uh, anti-Qing nationalist uh, secret societies. And so the, the third sort of thread of the paper and project is trying to understand the impact of missionary activity. And here, you know, there's all this whole big literature, particularly in economics, um, but in some other disciplines about the sort of beneficial downstream effects of missionary activity. And I think if you read these, and you know something about Chinese history, some of the things that these uh, that economists say about missionary activity and, and how it uh, leads to you know, long run, better education, because missionaries were spending education, you know, that's plausible. But I think if you if you've read the history of China and a lot of other places, you also know, like these missionaries also incited a lot of backlash. Uh, so this is only part of the story. Uh, and so that's that's the third thread of the story that we wanted to tell with this paper. Can we now just sort of narrow down a bit and can you put us on the ground when we're talking about missionary activity in China in, in the late Qing dynasty, um, what does this missionary activity 
look like? Who is this missionary activity? And then how, maybe getting to your final point on what the functional effects of or missionary activity on the ground in China, what was local receptivity or response to um, certain types of missionary activity? Was this welcomed with open arms or were there countervailing effects? Missionary activity in China and, you know, missionaries entering China, starting with, you know, partially uh, Catholic missionaries centuries before uh, the, the Opium Wars of, you know, that started in, you know, 1838. Uh, but the big flood of missionary activity happened at the end of the Second Opium War with the Treaty of Tianjin in 1858, when the rest, basically the whole of the interior of China, because of this course of unequal treaty, was opened to Christian missionary activity when, for centuries before, at least nominally, the interior of China had been, by law, basically closed to missionary activity. So starting in 1858, you have this flood of missionary activity that's happening in the interior of China. And, you know, missionaries are not really welcomed with open arms in the interior of China. They're, they, they, you know, they're, they're able to go into, you know, small cities, county towns and start to proselytize. They set up missionary stations, uh, you know, they're coming from you have a variety of different um, types of Christian missionaries, Catholic, as well as different uh, Protestant missionaries coming from, you know, largely Western Europe and the United States. And as they go into the interior of China, they're not making a lot of, they're not actually converting that many people relative to the size of, of the Chinese population. And they're actually starting to kind of incite backlash by a lot of what they're actually doing on the ground. Uh, so you have these, these missionaries who are going in, starting to proselytize, but they're also in doing so, you know, number one, they're often kind of basically like taking, taking land that's, that's important to local elites to build uh, churches and missionary houses. You know, maybe even more important is they're kind of undermining the authority of local elites whose authority is based in this kind of Confucian political system by, you know, sort of preaching these uh, the, the Christian gospel in a way that undermines the informal authority of local elites. And then maybe most damaging of all, uh, these missionaries have extraterritoriality, uh, which is basically like legal jargon for they're not subject to the laws of the Qing Empire. Instead, they're subject to the laws of their home, uh, of their, their home government. And so in the eyes of a, a lot of people in the Qing Empire at the time, you know, this made them sort of basically like unaccountable to the Qing. And, and, and you know, so people would think, well, who, what are these missionaries doing? Basically, they're converting local people and they're essentially protecting criminals who then, under this principle of extraterritoriality, are sometimes claiming that they're not subject to Qing laws uh, because they've converted to, to Christianity. So this just creates this big, this big backlash. And there's a series of anti-missionary incidents uh, that start to really ramp up in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, where you just have more and more protests, riots, and um, incidents of violence against uh, against missionaries, which ultimately culminates in uh, the, the Boxer Rebellion. One of the other really interesting things I learned reading your paper, which I feel like I should have known, but I didn't, was just the, the through line of some of this anti-missionary activity that was taking place on the ground and really modern China, the birth of Nationalist Party, but also key members of the CCP, uh, Judah. I mean, he's interesting. I wonder if you could just, you know, Judah, I think, you know, you wrote about was really later told, I think it was one of his biographers that he was really inspired because of one of these anti, you know, anti-missionary riots in, I think it was Chongqing, right? He later then joined the Tongmenghui, which is another sort of absolutely critical organization for understanding the end of the Qing dynasty, but also the birth of the Republic of China. Um, can you talk a bit about what some of the knock-on effects were of this anti-missionary activity in terms of galvanizing secret societies or inspiring a wave of individuals who would later play a really critical role in modern Chinese politics? Yeah, so Judah is like a really interesting character. He's, he's, he's kind of like the, the Forrest Gump of this era of of Chinese politics, at least in the sense that he seems to be everywhere. So he starts in in Chongqing, and as a, as a child, he basically learns about this this missionary activity that really, as a as a teenager, kind of incenses him that there are these missionaries who are coming to China who are from outside of China who are acting acting with impunity. He later joins uh, one of these Qing military academies, but he secretly also becomes a member of this. Uh, nationalist, ultimately anti-Qing uh, 
secret society, the Tongmenghui. And so he ends up participating, even though he's part of the, he starts on the side of the Qing, joins the secret society, uh, and then ultimately like joins, joins the rebellion against the Qing. And, uh, you know, partly, you know, as he describes to his biographer, one of the roots of his dissatisfaction with the Qing is witnessing these missionary incidents. And then fascinatingly, Judah, he like goes on, of course, he actually then uh, becomes essentially uh, like a warlord in the Republican era and then joins the communists, right? He and Mao are like peas in a pod, basically, at parts of the communist revolution. And, uh, you know, he goes on to become this major figure in the Communist Party. So he's a fascinating as a historical figure. I'd like there needs to be a biography, a new biography of him in English because he's such a he's such a fascinating figure. But he is for the story about missionary activity. He's really interesting because that seemed that was one of the one of several things that seemed to spark his kind of political awakening was his anger at these local missionaries. Can you talk about the data set you created here, which I which is connects sort of this whole story of missionaries and Tongmenghui? I don't have the map in front of me, but you you have this really good one where you looked at the hometowns of a Tongmenghui founder, and it's it's correlated with missionary activity, right? So, can you talk a little bit about how you collected that data? So we did a couple of things. First, we collected data on the home t- on all of the members, the original members of the Tongmenghui. So the Tongmenghui was founded. Uh, by uh, Sun Yat-sen, and it sort of knit together a bunch of revolutionary organizations to create uh, more unity in the revolutionary movement, nationalist, patriotic revolutionary movement that wanted to take down the Qing Empire. And so what we did is we basically found an an exhaustive roster of all of the members of the Tongmenghui, so we collected collected data on that. And then we also collected data on two other things. First, just the location of different missionaries and when missionaries started to enter different counties in China. And then second, we also collected data on uh, anti-missionary incidents. So we had uh, data on, you know, hundreds of of these different anti-missionary incidents. So then we basically had this data set that allowed us to look at correlations between, you know, was there an anti-missionary incident? Were there missionaries in a particular location? And did that location then later spawn founding members of the Tongmenghui? And the intuition here is kind of from, you know, you can think about the story of returning to the story of, of Judah, where you have someone who is, you know, relatively young, sees this anti-missionary activity and is basically radicalized by it and then later joins one of these uh, nationalist secret societies. So the quantitative data was a way for us to get a handle on, you know, to what extent does this pattern hold across China? Like we can come up with, and in the paper, I talk about specific examples of individuals, um, but is this, how systematic is this as a phenomenon? And so, so what we show in the paper is that, you know, certainly um, anti-missionary activity wasn't the only thing by any means that uh, uh, sort of sparked this nationalist movement, but it was, we thought it was one key underappreciated factor. So actually, that leads to my next question. A mutual friend of ours, Ja Reishe, had a paper, was that four years ago, where she and a co-author chose some of the same data set or a similar data set to look at how the examination of the imperial examination fed into the foundation of the Tongmenghui, but also sort of, you know, modern, modern nationalism. Where is your thesis differently adjacent or supportive of what Reishe and, and her co-author did? I love that paper, and we're we're coming essentially at an earlier at an earlier part in the story. So so we, we don't like, don't debate at all the fact that uh, the abolition of the imperial exam was another big grievance for especially local elites uh, to join these anti uh, Qing nationalist secret societies. What we thought, though, is, you know, and, and again, with believing the results of that paper, uh, was that the abolition of the imperial exam happens relatively late in the sequence of events, um, was in 1905, and, uh, or, or thereabouts. Um, and a lot of the people, if you read the biographies of these individual people who joined it, like, they were actually radicalized before that. Like, maybe the abolition of the exam was a key precipitating event that, that maybe pushed, was, you know, sort of pushed them into joining some of these secret societies. But they were already nationalists. They were already anti-Qing, a lot of them. And so we wanted to sort of go back, you know, believing the results of that paper, but we still wanted to go back further to figure out like, okay, well, you know, that the abolition of the exam was clearly important to mobilizing people into it, but the roots of the radicalization was clearly earlier in their biographies, a lot of, a lot of these uh, revolutionary figures. So we wanted to sort of go one step back from, from that paper. If we had the same, now I realize this, this actually logically won't make a whole lot of sense, but I'll ask it anyway. If we had had missionary activity in China, but competent Qing government 
response, um, or at least a response by the Qing government and local elites that did not look either like supplicants or incapable of responding to local demands about some of the some of the missionary activity. Does the trajectory of this diverge markedly? So is the formula, you know, foreign encroachment, foreign hostility plus uh, perceived incompetent, incapable governance response equals hostile nationalism to the regime, whereas foreign hostility, foreign encroachment plus confident, strong response by state apparatus, if potentially imperfect, but nonetheless perceived as competent, equals potentially nationalism, but state supportive nationalism? I think that's probably right. Uh, so, of course, we can't actually observe the counterfactual world in which the Qing responded uh, competently to this foreign uh, foreign incursion, but I, but I do uh, but I, I do think that's right. That's an important that's an important piece of of, of larger context where yeah, if you you could imagine a world where the Qing either first of all maybe didn't allow all this missionary activity to happen because right because if they had more coercive power if they were able to fend off the British. Uh, and and other imperial powers, this this wouldn't have happened in the first place. So that was obviously one bone of contention. But even then, like even conditional on them allowing missionaries in, the Qing still fumbled the response by you know time and again. And they had again a sort of metaphorical gun to their head from these imperial powers, but they kept siding with these missionaries in these local incidents against locals. And so this was another this was another big grievance. And so you could imagine a world in which the Qing either had the power to fend this off completely or had the power or, you know, were, were in some way able to, to respond more assertively in favor of local interests. Um, then you can imagine a world in which this anti-missionary activity would have, this uh, missionary activity would have just sparked anti-foreign nationalism and support for the Qing rather than anti-foreign nationalism that was also directed against the Qing. So I think you're right in the larger context. And there's a lesson here, I guess, for the, the CCP today, which is that, you know, if you have a political leadership that responds competently to, to foreign threats, then that can be a source of support. Even if there's a cost, even if there's a cost, it will pay off because or it, or it would probably compensate because you then won't have the population turning against you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's right. But if you respond incompetently, the population will turn against you. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I do think that there is a lesson lesson in history here. You know, history is not going to repeat itself. But I think the general dynamic here is something that uh, should be of concern to the CCP and, and, you know, authoritarian governments everywhere, which is that, you know, nationalism can come back to bite you. It's my last question. It actually takes us in a slightly different direction, but I think builds right off this. And I think I actually asked you this question in the last podcast, but I want to ask it again. Are dictators, dictatorships, authoritarian systems, I know those are slightly different, but I'll lump them together. Are they learning? Are they getting better as dictators over time? Or, or do you basically come to power and need to learn all the lessons over again? I think the way I asked you last time was like, Almost like, do they read your work? You know, is there like a, a a study group which is basically reading all this work on authoritarian systems and distilling lessons? I realize that's probably not happening, but nonetheless, as they you know, as they internalize historical stories, as they internalize comparative examples of looking at what's happening to other authoritarian regimes, do are we noticing in any way, or is it possible to measure that authoritarians are getting better at holding on to power and perpetuating the regime? That's a great question. And I think the answer is, I'm going to give like a classic academic answer, yes and no. Uh, so where I think the answer here is yes, is there are some cases where learning over time is definitely happening. And, and I think these are cases where having more information about what works and doesn't work is helpful. And where do you think they would be getting that? Is that information just observation of comparative looking at other regimes, but also feedback mechanisms where they're seeing what works internally or doesn't work? I think both. I think both, right? And, and you know, you can think about the the set of like internal reports that the regime gets through uh, like Xinhua. I've, as a side, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but like, I don't know if you saw the recent great piece in Reuters by uh, Dr. Tong that was about like the, the Xinhua system, the system of internal reports and how it's become more kind of sclerotic under Xi Jinping and even they're even censoring some of these internal reports. Uh, but nevertheless, I do think that there's, yeah, there's some amount of learning both internally from what works and what doesn't work within the system and then some diffusion about, uh, you know, across regimes 
uh, about different tactics that works. You know, this is one thing that China has been explicitly interested in, you know, sharing like internet management techniques with other with other authoritarian regimes. So I do think that there's definitely learning over time. But I but at the same time, I do think that there are there are structural dynamics where there's politics and, and there's individual agency. But nevertheless, there's some things that uh, there's some political dynamics that are just hard for regimes to shape. And I think the Qing is another example of like, well, in this answer of like in this counterfactual world in which the Qing did better, like would there have been less uh, less of a nationalist movement? Yes, but there were also coercive, there were also structural coercive things going on that made it really hard for the Qing to do it. Like they would have liked to have responded better, but because the coercive balance of power favored uh, you know Britain and the rest of the imperial powers, uh, Britain and the rest of the imperial powers could use guns essentially to force the Qing not to, to to intervene in favor of the missionaries rather than in favor of local interests. So even though you know in a counterfactual world in which the Qing uh, could have said no to this, this missionary activity might not have been directed against them. But basically they were to some extent they were really constrained in what they in what they could do. Um, so I don't think it's just a case of like, well if they'd done a little bit better, if they had like learned, if they had better information, they would have been able to solve this problem. Well like to a certain extent maybe, but I think the bigger issue here was basically the course of balance of the course of balance of power. You know, I do think that the party thinks about and reads about history, right? About these history resolutions, which are mostly about party history. Um, but I think the party is also acutely aware of some of these factors that led, for example, to the downfall of the Qing dynasty and and has and is invested in not letting this happen. And so I do think that there is, a, you know, certainly at the margins, there's some learning over time about, uh, you know, what, what about Chinese history can inform how the CCP rules today. And, and I think the leadership today, at least makes a big show of being uh, good students of Chinese history. And so I think, uh, so I do think that there are probably direct lessons that the party draws from this, even though they're not reading this paper. You were just mentioning it. The challenge, though, is states in general, political systems and political parties are not perfect lesson learning machines. And partly because some of the questions you ask, if asked bluntly, are recognitions of failure. Um, and some of the answers would not uh, comport with existing known parameters of acceptable sort of behavior. So there's all these constraints to accurately learning lessons. And indeed, you think of the United States, if we were accurately learning lessons, our foreign policy would be very different than it has historically been, right? We would have a much more refined, nuanced, nimble, you know, outcome-oriented foreign policy where we continue to blunder and make missteps because of political incentives and constraints that are not aligned with, we're going to be sort of totally, totally open, porous, objective lesson, lesson learners. Um, and I wondered that, that really good Reuters report you mentioned, I, I'd heard a, a similar anecdote from someone about, they talked to someone at one of the Chinese think tanks who had written a, port, a report about something of importance and decided to spike it because they knew just raising it up one level would get them in trouble for basically talking about an option set, which was not within the implicitly understood parameters of acceptable debate, at least insofar as how the, how the big guy looked at it. So I wonder if, if China's lesson learning ability will also deteriorate over time as political incentives shift. Yeah, there's, so there's a really fascinating forthcoming book and article by Tyler Jost at, at Brown, who's a co-author of mine. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's partly about miscalculation in international conflicts. And you know, he looks, among other things, at the, at the Mao era and finds that uh, when it comes to these really super important strategic decisions about, about conflicts, there are certain pathologies of regimes like you know, China under Mao or China under Xi Jinping, or of course, two very different regimes in a lot of ways. But I think that probably uh, they create these information bureaucracies um, that are, you know, that are, that are siloed in ways that makes it hard for the best information to rise to the top and lead to the strategic miscalculation. So I think it's a really fantastic book and article that deal with exactly this problem. And it has, you know, potentially ominous implications for understanding China's, you know, international relations over the next decade. Slight adjustment to that. Cause I hear everyone say like, is Xi Jinping getting the right information, which sort of begs the question of, are we saying that if he got a different set of information, he would have made radically different choices? So I think the other challenge is not just information flows, but how a leader interprets, you know, information. I think we, we hang on the like, ah, oh, he's not getting the information because that feels like if only he could get the right information, 
suddenly we would get a dramatically different, you know, better, better course correction. But, but I, I think it's sort of information flows plus, you know, plus analytical, you know, uh, analytical ability plus, you know, priors and assumptions about the world. And I bet there's, I bet there's little information that could be given to Xi Jinping on some of the core issues that could fundamentally adjust him. And by the way, in the same way that the signal that we should have gotten out of the 20th Party Congress, at least in the language on Taiwan in the work report, is that they had just slightly lowered the temperature, right? It was not nearly as aggressive language as many were expecting. But despite that fact, that hasn't been internalized in the narrative. You see no difference in how the broad orientation of our, our assumptions of what China wants to do on Taiwan haven't adjusted at all, despite a clear signal coming from the most authoritative document in the entire system. So it makes me think if we're incapable, like there was the right information coming in, but the incorrect output judgment, I, I would imagine it's, you know, the same challenge would exist for Beijing. You're right. You're right. And like, presumably, in theory, we should be more nimble, especially as like analysts and people are watching China from outside the government. Like we should we should probably should be nimble in our thinking and think about the things that are constraining people in government. You're right. In fairness, the, the only reason I picked up on that signal is because my prior view already held that position that China want, isn't looking to invade Taiwan tomorrow. So I do this is a bit of a cheap shot for me to say that that's what we should have all picked up from the work report, because um, I bet if I hear at the margin, if I see evidence indicating a slightly more aggressive tone from Beijing, I'm not sure that's automatically going to mean that I'm going to sh fundamentally shift my position because it's so deeply rooted. Um, so I'm not I'm not picking on anyone. And I think this is just a cognitive challenge for for human beings, especially once you've set yourself on a a path, it takes a real extraordinary accumulation of countervailing evidence or like getting, having a Mack truck hit you at a perpendicular angle to get you to fundamentally shift your, you know, your, your view on something. I'd like to think we're all like John Maynard Keynes, you know, when the, when the facts shift, I change my opinion. What do you do, sir? But I don't think that's realistic. No, I have a theory and I'm sticking with it. Um, yeah, yeah, no, that's. I, mean, I think that's that's right. And I mean, I think to go back to something you said earlier too, and there's something that social scientists don't really think much about at all, which is you know, the disposition, the kind of character and disposition of individual leaders probably matters. Uh, and so, you know, there just there might be just something about Xi Jinping where you're right, like whatever information he gets, you know, regardless, like you know, maybe he's updating, but updating slowly his beliefs based on the new new signals he's getting. But at the core, there's something about his particular disposition and set of experiences that, you know, I think academics and social scientists in particular probably don't think enough. Well, I mean, just fi final shout out to the IR scholars. I mean, that's kind of Robert Jervis, you know, perception and misperception, you know, looking at, you know, how leaders process, interpret, you know, information and the political psychology of it. Because I just... Looking at American politics has changed the way I've thought about Chinese politics, partly because it just reminds me again of these are humans inhabiting this political system. And so the incentive structures are different, but the same sort of cognitive challenges and biases, pathologies, advantages that you see operating in the US, you know, they're, they're different incentive structures. But, but nonetheless, Xi Jinping will sit down, get briefings, have certain information coming in, certain information not coming in, will have his own set of priors and assumptions, disposition, and will be making judgments. Well, Dan, we've covered a lot of ground, not all of it with a refined sense of directionality, like two men lost on a hillside without a compass. We've, we've talked about Hu Jintao, we've talked about Tong Meng Hui, uh, and then we've talked about uh, political psychology but more a testament to your, your wide range of interests and scholarship. So thank you uh, again for, for coming on for a second time. I tell listeners that although we, we covered the paper in about 15 minutes, it's for anyone interested in contemporary China and trying to understand the sort of antecedents and roots of, of nationalism, but also just as a really great um, example of engaged political science of readability and relevance that doesn't require uh, wading through massive amounts of, of equations. Um, I have to say, I highly, highly recommend uh, recommend the paper. So, Dan, thanks for your time, and look forward to having you on a third time when the when the book is out in twenty forty two.
<laughs> Thank you so much, dude. This is really fun. I really appreciate the, the chance to come back on the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 